Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we are taking a look at Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah, now a Golden Globe award-winning film. It's available on HBO Max. We watched it, and I'm excited to talk about it. We're also looking at Studio Ghibli's next big film, Earwig and the Witch. It is also on HBO Max, a little unconventional for Studio Ghibli, and their first film in four years. I made Andy watch it. We're going to talk about it. It's going to be great. First things first... Uh, we are going to talk about the Golden Globes. That's not actually coming first. That's coming in the middle of the show. The first thing we are getting to is the news. And before we get to all that, Andy, we haven't done a show in like three weeks. This is the longest time yes, we've gone without doing really, a show. Yeah, in forever. We had it's weird. Snowpocalypse. Oh, uh, we had snowpocalypse. You watch any movies during that, or were you just out of power? Uh, I was mostly out, out of power. I was also out of power. Shout out to Texas and our cool electric grid. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, that's what's going on with us. Then we took a week off for personal reasons. Now we're back and we're excited to talk about stuff. First things first, the news. Edgar Wright to direct the Stephen King adaptation of The Running Man for Paramount Pictures. This is a surprise. I, uh, my Edgar Wright, my boy, uh, director of Hot Fuzz, Shaun of, the Dez, the, Shaun of the Dead, The World's End, and most recently Baby Driver, is suddenly doing a movie, a, a Stephen King adaptation. What do you know about this, Andy? So he's going to be updating the 80s classic, The Running Man, uh, which originally starred none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. And is uh, it's kind of a futuristic dystopian uh, thing where people are in thrown into some sort of game show where they have to like run from run for their lives. Essentially, they're running from uh, people essentially trying to kill them all for the entertainment of millions of viewers at home. Uh, like I said, it originally started Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a little bit of a B movie classic. It's not a great movie, but it's it's pretty interesting to uh, be rebooting it with a great director. Yeah, great director indeed. Uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of Wright. Uh, I love a lot of his work. I have a Baby Driver poster hanging above my computer right now. Uh, Wright's last adaptation, last thing he tried to adapt was Ant Man for Marvel. In fact, the reason Ant Man exists in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is because of Edgar Wright. He had a script he wanted to do, and he's really excited about it. Uh, he was in early talks to work through it with them, but then something went wrong along the way. He said it was something about creative vision. Marvel just kind of had an, an angle they wanted to do, and it wasn't really where he wanted to go, so it didn't work. Um, so they parted ways, and Ant-Man became the Ant-Man movies that we know now. This is the first time I've heard of him adapting anything. Otherwise, he's done everything on his own. There were his own original scripts. Baby Driver, all of those were his own. But what's interesting about Wright right now is not only does he have a documentary in the works, uh, The Sparks Brothers, a musical documentary that just got picked up by... I forget who got picked up for the distribution. I want to say by like CBS or Paramount, small world. Um, but also he's directing Last Night in Soho, which is a movie that was supposed to come out earlier this year, but has been delayed due to the pandemic. So him directing a adaptation of a Stephen King book and also what was formerly an Arnold Schwarzenegger film is uh, odd, I guess. But I'm excited, I think. <laughs> yeah, you you know the original movie uh, kind of it toys with this idea of like media consumption and being obsessed with media and TV and kind of thing. And a lot of that like hasn't really changed. Like just the the platforms and the technology has changed, but there's still kind of that like obsession with uh, you know TV and shows and that that sort of thing. So I think it, it's going to be easy to kind of update it. Yeah. And, and before I get too far away from it, I just looked up on IMDb. I was wrong. Uh, he has adapted a previous work. Uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is an adaptation of a comic book series. Uh, that's his film. And that was written by Michael Bacall, who will be penning the script for this movie. So the two of them are going to be back together uh -huh. most recently. Michael Bacall wrote uh, 21 Jump Street and Inglorious Bastards. So that's where that guy's coming from. That's what's going on in The Running Man. Keep it here on Offscript for more. Next up, a new Superman movie is coming. A new reboot. Superman's getting rebooted again. Andy, I'm too excited about this. What do you know about it? So, uh, amid rumors that Henry Cavill was stepping down as Superman, um, we're going to be rebo rebooting Superman again. Yeah. May again, for the upteenth up time. Maybe it'll stick. Um, the DCEU, as we all know, kind of got off to a rocky start, never really took off in the way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe did. Um, however, these are hot properties uh, that money can still be made in the right directors. And so it's going to be produced, not directed by J.J. Abrams. I originally thought, or originally had heard it was he was going to be directing, in which case I was not thrilled about that at all, um, as he's the reboot king who doesn't know how to finish a property. <laughs> but... Um, 
<laughs> it w- it will be. Um, is it written by the the person who writes a uh, Black Panther? Yeah, so it's written by uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, a um, really famous black author in America. You may have heard of a few of his books. Uh, I wish I had them on hand, but this is a movie show and I'm not the biggest reader like my wonderful wife. But yes, he most recently has done some writing for Black Panther and Captain America. Supposedly, according to Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Ta-Nehisi's writing in Black Panther is what inspired them to make the film. So there's definitely something there. Yeah. And also worth mentioning, Ta-Nehisi Coates is currently, arguably... From what I've read, one of our greatest writers, one of the greatest American writers alive today, writing about morality. So oh. there's something there about Superman. He is, of course, a black author, and people have speculated, well, wait, hold on. Does this mean we might be getting that fabled black Superman that Michael B. Jordan was all excited about when he came to, <laughs> came, when he came to uh, Marvel? Maybe. Maybe not. There is some precedence in the comic books for a black Superman on an alternate Earth. I forget his name. Clark Ellis, I think. Uh, so maybe that's the way this is going. Either way, I'm interested. I kind of hope we don't lose Henry Cavill because I think he's a good Superman, but we'll see, I guess. He, he is. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised with the introduction of the multiverse, which is going to happen soon, uh, where characters will be able to just kind of come back. I mean, we're, we're going to be seeing Michael Keaton after 30 years. Um, so there's no reason characters can't come back. But uh, I'm always excited. Uh, I'm a big Superman fan, and it's we've talked about this before. He's a hard character to adapt. To, to really make him interesting because he is kind of like godlike and perfect. So you, you have to introduce interesting villains, interesting conflicts uh, that, that kind of bring the audience along. And you can't just be all spectacle. That's, I think, been the issue with, with Zack Snyder more than anything is he focuses on the spectacle and kind of loses focus of the characters. Yeah. So we'll see. I, I'm, I'm interested. Like you said, there's definitely potential. Uh, I, I would love it if they could figure out a way to keep... Cavill in, but if they're if they're rebooting it, what are you gonna do, right? Like you can't you can't reboot with the same Superman. I mean, you could, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. That's Keep weird. it on off script for more. The last story we have: Paramount Plus. What? Everything you need to know about Viacom CBS's new streaming service as we inch ever closer to what essentially is a cable package as the boomers know it. More streaming services are coming out. Everybody wants a piece of the streaming pie, and CBS is. Basically sunsetting their CBS service, as we know it, CBS All Access, and rolling it into Paramount Plus, the exciting new Plus service everybody's got to have. Last Wednesday, they announced this in a big meeting, a big big public three-hour thing where they had a bunch of trailers and stuff that was coming out. Nobody watched it because everybody already has Netflix and Hulu, but we here on (laughs) Offscript also didn't watch it. We read the article and we're excited to talk about it. Andy, now that I've forced you to read this, what do you know about Paramount Plus? So like, like you said, it, this is formerly CBS All Access, and they're going to be re, kind of rebranding it as Paramount+. Plus. Shout out to Disney Plus for bringing us the Plus branding that everyone is stealing or, or stealing. Apple Plus, D- yeah. D- Disney Plus, Paramount Plus. Who else? Universal um, Plus? I don't know. <laughs> so they're going to have two tiers. They're going to have a, an ad-supported tier that's $4.99 and then ad-free tier for $9.99. And it's uh, going to have a bunch of CBS properties, uh, which is a bunch of th- things I don't really watch. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but th- th- they do have, I mean, they do have a significant amount of su- subscribers. They're over like 30 million um, as well as the, on their Pluto TV server, which is another streaming service that, that they, they own. So there's a lot going on. Uh, it does have a built-in fan base. There are, as much as I don't watch a lot of network TV and never never have, there are millions of people who do, and uh, this they definitely have a, a piece of the pie that they can carve out and, and make money on. So that's what's going to be starting. This starts actually March 4th, and then the ad-supported or the cheaper version starts in June. That's right. If you're listening to this show, odds are you can already get Paramount Plus or it'll be within 48 hours of you being able to get it uh, because we're recording this on the second. A lot of interesting properties coming to this. They're doing some series reboots of popular films like Grease and Flashdance. They're going to do a series about the making of The Godfather. Frasier is getting a reboot on Paramount Plus and Kelsey Grammer is already attached to Star. Halo, the video game series, is getting a series they're working on. Uh, Star Trek is coming over. They're adding a new series from there 
along with Star Trek Discovery. All 726 episodes of every Star Trek series is going to be available. Every episode of SpongeBob SquarePants is going to be available and a ton of the Nickelodeon library. Uh, CBS is building out a whole new thing for Avatar The Last Airbender. And they've claimed that movies like A Quiet Place Part 2 and Mission Impossible 7, things that Paramount has a hand in, will be coming to the service just 45 days after the theatrical release window. So, a lot going on in Paramount Plus. Is it worth it? Probably not, but we'll keep you posted. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm skeptical. There's, so, there's so many services now. It's yeah, ridiculous. my cap is like four or five, man. And between like Amazon, Hulu, and HBO and Disney Plus, I don't know if I need any more. I got Netflix, maybe, but like I don't, I don't know if I can do Paramount Plus. That's a lot. Even with that ten dollars sweet ad free deal, even with the five dollars sweet ad supported deal, that's just a lot. So I don't know. We'll see. Maybe we'll sign up for the trial and check it out, but. With that, we need to move on to our first review. If I'm moving fast, it's because we got to talk about the Golden Globes and it always takes us forever to talk about review stuff. So we'll get to it in between our reviews of Judas and the Black Messiah and Eric and the Witch. But for now, Andy has graciously agreed to take the summary on this. Andy, please take it away. Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. So this is a, not a biopic, a bit of a biography about um, Black Panther chairman uh, Fred Party Hampton. Party chairman Fred Hampton, yes. Party chairman Fred Hampton, who Sorry, was I... uh, assassinated by the by the uh, FBI, CIA. Um, and he, kind of what, what happens in this film, we learn about a character named Bill O'Neill who infiltrates the Black Panther organization. He gets in trouble with the law. They kind of, they lean on him to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. He joins the movement so he can kind of report back what's what's happening. Um, and along the way, he becomes, you know, engrossed in the in the movement and what they're trying to do for uh, Black America and um, oppressed people in America and, and everywhere else. So it's, it's a very interesting film. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield plays... Uh, Bill O'Neill and of course the great Daniel Kaluuya plays chairman Fred Hampton and we get uh, Jesse Plemons as well as the kind of sinister FBI uh, go to her handler. Um, This is a pretty incredible film and uh, the trailer really got me right away and uh, it delivers and we learn a lot about the Black Panther organization, what they were doing, what they weren't, what they were kind of propagandized as. Um, there's a lot going on in this film. I really enjoyed it. There's a lot to talk about. Zach, what'd you think? So I really liked it. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is is a really good stuff. It's available on HBO Max. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, we'll talk about it more at the end and where you can find it. But I was a little overhyped for this movie. I'll be honest. I thought it was going to be something it wasn't. And I think that kind of sullied my first experience, but I really enjoyed it. It's worth another rewatch, I think, for me. I definitely thought it was going to be more about kind of Lakeith Stanfield's Bill O'Neill and kind of his journey. I mean, he's literally front and center on the poster. Um, but it's really about both of them, Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill, right? Like the, the kind of this kind of interesting dynamic duo who really actually don't spend that much time together on screen. They're both kind of leaving, living their own lives. Um, the movie does a funny job of keeping them both at arm's length. It never really lets you be too personal with either of them. It kind of observes them a little bit more as almost a documentary style. Keeps them far away. Keeps them, keeps them separated through history and time from us, the audience. Um, but it also lifts up who they are and what they've done. Um, you know, in the case of Fred Hampton, the things he did that were tremendous for the black community, for the black Panthers. I mean, the, the steps he was willing to take as, as a 21 year old man, he wasn't even that old. Um, to, you know, change the world around him versus Bill O'Neill, who's the exact opposite, right? He's our Judas uh, titular character who is selling out everything he knows to try to get out of an FBI charge for stealing a car. Uh, it's it's pretty damning and it's it's surprising. It tells the story in a way I haven't heard it before and I'm excited to talk about it. Andy, where do we jump in on this? Uh, why don't we start with the plot? Yes. So, like we said at the beginning, we meet uh, Lakeith Stanfield as Bill O'Neill. He gets, uh, you know, caught 
or in trouble with the law he he gets pressured to join the organization and he and he uh you know is is pretty easy to you know he just kind of shows up signs up and at first you know he he's, he doesn't really care what they're doing he's just trying to get out of getting in trouble but he gets deeper and deeper and on both sides uh he becomes trusted by the organization and by uh chairman fred hampton and he also gets deeper in with with the fbi who kind of you know no matter what he does he's going to kind of be working for for them until you know till kingdom come he can't really get out of either side and and there there are um there's it's there's a lot of danger reminds me a little bit of, of the the departed where where um leonardo dicaprio's character is trying to be an undercover in this really dangerous mob organization because uh bill o'neill like he's in danger of being killed by the black panther party because they will absolutely uh kill traitors and you know kind of moles and then he's also got to keep the fbi at bay who will give him you know five years in federal prison or or worse you know so it's it's a very tricky uh position but the movie is also about just the the organization of the black panther party what they were trying to do the good they they were trying to do the changes they were trying to make and the inspirational figure that uh was daniel kalua or sorry it was fred, chairman fred hapted played by daniel kalua um so th- that's kind of our our like i said it, it's our setup and it's a. Uh, Zach, take this off me. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I, I think Daniel Kaluuya is tremendous in this film. He won the Golden Globe for it. We'll talk about Golden Globe winners in just a second, but um, it's it's not without good reason. He is very, very good in this movie. He's always been good. Let me be clear. From like watching Get Out, you were like, oh man, this kid is really good at what he does, and and it's 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 great to see him finally getting awarded for that. He's tremendous in Widows. He's really good, but he's really good in this movie because he really manages to nail this feeling of feeling like Fred Hampton. I mean, I don't know Fred Hampton. I haven't spent a lot of time watching stuff on Fred Hampton, but this film opens with a great historical montage of like actual old footage of Black Panthers and FBI raids. And then it, after a couple minutes of montage slips in a shot of Daniel Kalia as Fred Hampton, just to kind of like integrate this illusion that we're like stepping back in time. And the first time you see him, I mean, you know, it's, we know it's Daniel Kalia watching it, but like he really starts to transform on screen. He's got this accent and he's rugged and he's kind of got the scowl on his face, but he's passion He's very impassioned about what he's talking about. And this is held up so nicely against Lakeith Stanfield, who is, this just kind of nobody. I mean, it, 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 they, they do a really clever job of introducing him on screen uh, when he gets caught for this crime that he's committed. Um, and he gets taken in uh, by this FBI agent, Agent Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons. Very menacing, uh, very, very, very Philip Seymour Hoffman-esque that way, Jesse Plemons is. Uh, and, and Lakeith is scared, and he's Bill O'Neill is this just kind of twig, twig of a man. I mean, like, he's, he's just not a lot to him, not a lot of meat on those bones. He's scared and know what to do. And he's put up against a wall and you have the, yeah, the option. Okay. You can sell out your friends. You can go home the night. Or you can spend 20 years in jail. What do you want to do? Um, and, and, you know, he picks the, the, the road less traveled by, I think. And, and that's fundamentally where our film heads. And the two of them are so, so great. Like Stanfield caught a lot of heat for this movie. Um, especially from, I think some more outspoken members of the black community, like the breakfast club, Charlemagne, the God, he had some shit to say, uh, about him. And, and, I think uh, well, we can talk about the controversy in a minute, but as far as the performances go, they're both outstanding. I wish I wish Lakeith had been nominated as well. I, I think he deserves it. But yeah, he's, you're exactly right. While Daniel Kaluuya does a great job as, uh, you know, embodying Fred Hampton, um, Lakeith Sanfield is the main character and he does hold most of the movie. And he's he's such a tortured person because he believes in this cause. He wants he wants to support the cause. And he, at the same time, he's actively undermining it, you know, to kind of save his own, his own neck, um, which is, you know, it's hard to say like, you know, would you do any different kind of situation? He's just, he's in a lose-lose situation. Yeah. And the situation, the movie escalates, right? Because when it starts, he gets busted and it's like, Hey, we want you to get involved with these black Panthers. And he's like, okay, that's it. Yeah, I can do that. That's easy. And then he realizes he can't really get out of this deal. Like it just keeps going. And, and, and our agent Mitchell, you know, kind of invites him into his home and he's like, Hey, let me explain why this is a big deal. These guys are terrorists. They're bad. All right. They, they, they're just as bad as the KKK. Like if, if you, if you would out the KKK, you would out them. Right. And at the same time that he's getting this information from the FBI that, Hey, he's being kind of being fed this idea that the black Panthers are not beneficial to the community, that they're bad people. <laughs> Things start to escalate on the Black Panther side. We get some infighting in the community. There's firearms, right? People are shot. 
it starts to step up. And as the movie goes on, like you find these situations getting more and more hairy. We're, we're getting into clashes with police. Now we're having shootouts in the streets. Like it's getting worse. And the body count starts building and Bill O'Neill is caught in the middle of this and has to wrestle with himself. Hey, not only am I involved, I'm starting a lot of this. Like people are dying because of the actions. I feel like I'm being forced to take. And if I were to try to get out now, it's too late. They, who knows what they would do to me if they found out I was an FBI informant. So he's really trapped against a wall. And um, the movie does a great job of ratcheting up that suspension as we go. Yeah. Part of what I think this movie is doing, uh, you know, it tells the, this story of these two characters, but it's also, it's just informing us about, again, what the Black Panther Party really was and what it wasn't. And it also shows the the way he was just undermined and targeted by the, by, by the U S government in, in ways that were uh, incredibly, you know, discriminatory. And this, you see not only the government, but also local police where there's this, I mean, it's just, you know, state sanctioned terrorism said essentially against the, the black community. And you have Martin Sheen uh, playing J Edgar, J Edgar. Yeah. Hoover, yeah. Um, who's, you know, who's, who's kind of focusing on, the Black Panthers and talking about like they're trying to destroy our way of life and you know all these really I mean white supremacist kind of uh, ideals and it, it's so interesting because Jesse Plemons character is not you know he's not someone who he doesn't throw anyone up against a wall he doesn't you know he doesn't rough up anyone up but he you know he helps carry out these kind of executions and other kinds of things that completely undermine what they're trying to do. Right. Everybody is a wheel, like, like, like a cog in this giant clockwork of a system. And like, even, even the people who don't necessarily agree, I mean, from Bill O'Neill to even Agent Mitchell, right? He's not necessarily like in, in alignment with this idea that like the Black Panthers are bad. He's not even, I mean, I, I would think the film implies he's not even particularly like racist, but that doesn't matter. Like the U.S. government sees this as a threat and therefore they're going to stop it. This movie does no favors <laughs> to the government and the FBI. Uh, it, it, I mean, looking at the title, right, Black Messiah, it very clearly lays out this idea that like Fred Hampton was a very good person and the FBI is very bad people. And I think that's what makes this so interesting. <laughs> this isn't exactly like our, our, you know, public school system history lesson here. This is a different look. This is the different take. And that's exciting. That's different. You don't see that in movies every day, right? We go to the film, we go to movies to escape and, and find out something new. And that's exactly what this movie's doing. It's telling a side of a story I haven't heard before. And it's doing it in a way that's so captivating. Shaka King, the director, has not directed a feature film since 2013. This is like his third one. And it's super good. How has this person not been making more movies? It's stunning to me. And, and, and I'm so impressed by the work in this film. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that, that's really interesting about the the chairman that that we learn is that, um, and why it's called uh, he was the black the black messiah because he was bringing people together, people of all different kind of walks of life, rival gangs, rival like. There's this great scene where he walks into like uh, what's kind of like a, not a Confederate area, but he walks into a church where there's a bunch of like kind of rural white people yeah. mm -hmm. um, who are also complaining about some of these things. There's a big Confederate flag on the wall and, you know, he walks in and he helps to essentially start creating this rainbow coalition of um, not just um, rival like black gangs, but also, you know, poor whites, uh, LGBTQ, other people of co color. And this is what the government really fears the most is that he will unite all these disparate uh not races, but just groups and organizations into one like really powerful thing. And that that's their biggest fear. Right. Like it, it, this idea that, that he's not like Malcolm X, right. Who was a character who was obviously outspoken and strong, but definitely believed a little bit more in this idea of, of lines across society and who we are and who we say. Fred Hampton, meanwhile, is a young individual who's like, why do we have to be on different sides? We're all suffering. Why can't we all come together and do something about that? And that's really inviting, um, not only for the characters in the film who are typically decrying him before they find, oh, okay, he's not so bad, but for the audience. For me to watch this movie and go, wow, what he's saying kind of makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's talking about stuff that I saw on Twitter last week, you know, like that's that's really revelatory. And it's not just because this was a script that was written a couple of years ago. It's because this stuff is still a problem in America. And this isn't things we've solved. In fact, it's only gotten worse. And it's. 
fascinating. It's a fascinating look back at history. It's a fascinating retelling of events. It's a it's a it's a fascinating performance on both sides from both of these individuals. Um, I was really really impressed by this film. I, I'd like to talk about the music. I, I don't have a lot to say, unfortunately. I don't really recall anything outstanding. I, I did enjoy the color grading. This movie's very dark, lots of shadows, and that was really cool. Um, ah, man, I, I just thought the world of it. Yeah, I was going to say, so I listened to an interview with uh, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, who's just had this really incredible career, um, which it it was funny. He he was in a movie called uh, Short Term 12, which a bunch of stars like uh, Rami Malek. Brie Larson uh, was in Short Term 12, yeah. Right. A a bunch of people that are big stars now um, in like 2012, 2013. um, That movie was originally a short and then it eventually got funded to become a full movie and they couldn't find Lakeith Stanfield like because he had like no phone and no like permanent yeah. address you know and like someone saw his like he he had signed up with some film board in somewhere in California and and like the directors had to find it like they found him that and were able to locate him uh, but but anyways uh, I've I, I heard a really good interview of him and he's just in awe of, of Daniel Kaluuya and uh, Fred Hampton and the, and everything that he gets to do in this uh, movie. Yeah, I, I I probably read it. Was that a Vanity Fair interview? Because I read one the other day with him. It was probably oh, no, it was, no, it was the um, Kermode. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so I, I was reading about him as well. They're, both of these guys are very interesting individuals, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, but Lakeith is particularly... Um, I don't know. He catches my eye in a way. I've seen him in Atlanta. Obviously saw him in smaller stuff like Get Out. Sorry to Bother You, which we reviewed on this show, is excellent, by the way. That's on Hulu. It's a super good movie. You should go check it out. But um, Lakeith is is an interesting individual. And originally, he thought he was going to be playing Fred Hampton. Up until one day, he like happened to Google this story and Googled Bill O'Neill and realized, oh, I look a lot like Bill O'Neill. Huh, that's weird. So... He had a really conflicted performance with this because he, in a lot of ways, very much vehemently disagrees with Bill O'Neill and who he is. He originally wrote him off as just like a punk who like sold out everybody for for himself, like, you know, the, the, the worst kind of person you can be. And he had a tough time playing the role because he was playing this guy who so fervently is against what Lakeith believes. Um and right. he's been I mean, called no one, out for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, no one, no one wants to be Judas. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody wants to play Judas. Yeah. And like Lakeith really struggled with that in this film. So I think his performance shines through regardless. I, I think that's a sign of, of a great actor an actress that like you can stand outside of your personal beliefs and do well at this. And, and he did. They, they're both tremendous. Well, also, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. Like the, the point of the movie is to tell us about, you know, the, it's, the story is about Judas. It's about like, you're not supposed to like, he's not the hero. He's just the main character. Right. <laughs> he's, uh, so it's weird that people are, are struggling with that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a somber movie, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, if you don't know what happens to Fred Hampton, I suppose I'd tell you to watch the film. Um, but it's, uh, we probably said in this review at some point what happens to Fred Hampton, yeah. but I mean, also Bill O'Neill, right? Like he's a part of this story. The people in Fred Hampton's live or lives are a part of this story. And you kind of find out more about what happens to them. And it's a tough watch at the end, but it's an encouraging film and, and it's phenomenally well-made, obviously golden globe award-winning movie at this point. I am excited to see it at the Oscars. I think it will come up again. Um, Andy, any other thoughts for recommendations? I think I'm ready. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is available on HBO Max for streaming. If you have the means, I would say you might check it out there. But before we get to that, Andy, would you recommend Judas and the Black Messiah? Absolutely. It's a really powerful film. Great performances by Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya. Um, it is a tough watch, you know, because it is about racism and, and oppression of uh, black movements in, in the 60s, which uh, we, most people know by now that were pretty much crushed and undermined and uh all that stuff by uh, the U S government. So it is a tough, it's tough subject matter matter. There's uh, some violence in the scenes as well, but it's one of those things like uh, you, you know, everyone deserves to know about this and to, to learn about it, even if it's not a particularly comfortable subject. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. I would, I would definitely recommend this movie. It is not quite what you expect going in. That's the, that's the one thing I'd say, if you watch trailers and got excited, like I did leave your expectations at the door. 
going fresh, even even listening to this review. But um, I think you'll like what you find. It's it's a really well made film. Two really stunning performances from a couple of young actors who obviously have a lot of runway ahead of them. Very excited to see what they do next. Very excited to recommend this movie. It's available on HBO Max. With that, we should probably move on to our next section of the show. This is something that, like I said earlier, takes a lot of time for us to get through normally. But I'm gonna try to keep us moving along. We're doing pretty good on time right now. So Andy. Do you mind introducing this for me? Let's jump right into it. It's time for the death of cinema. So we are talking about the Golden Globes and the 2021 award winners and snubs. That's important. We did our picks last time we talked about the show three weeks ago. Now we are talking about the winners. We are talking pretty much exclusively about the film ones. If we happen to mention television, it's because it's errant. This is a film podcast by God. And that's what we're going to do with that. Let's jump into the Golden Globes. So, Andy, where do you want to start this thing? Uh, we start at the top. Best uh, best picture? Or are we going like reverse like they do it to build up? Uh... So we'll, we'll start. I mean, there's a film category. It starts with uh, best picture, musical or comedy, which is kind of an odd category. The winner is Borat, subsequent movie film, uh, which was kind of funny. Uh, but there also were eh, a, a, yeah. a ton of of um you know winners this year i would my pick would have been a uh, palm springs it's also important to point out uh this movie music which i've heard some more about uh which is a film by sia about an, an autistic girl uh apparently it's it's really awful and has really inaccurate uh, depictions of uh what autism is and isn't and uh it, i was l- listening to an to another show uh and there were people writing in and there's actually some really dangerous depictions particularly with like the use of like medical restraints and yeah so yeah don't, <laughs> don't watch that it's terrible but uh yeah. anyways borat not not surprising uh, uh yeah go ahead, sorry no, I want to. Can I weigh in on Borat? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Go should, ahead. It should have been Palm Springs. That's my. <laughs> yeah. Also, Palm, Palm, yeah. Palm Springs is is a gem of a film. It's funny. It's sweet. It's short. Um, I feel like Borat won just because it's the name. Yeah, like I feel like Palm Springs, in a way, like really kind of captures where we were as a society in the middle of pan of the pandemic when we were all trapped inside. And Andy Samberg plays this character who is like trapped in the situation and has a very nihilistic view on life. It's original. I know it kind of rips off the Groundhog Day idea, but it feels fresh. It stars a couple of millennials. Borat Two is okay. It wasn't. As good. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And also, yeah, I heard the same thing about music. Do your own research. Apparently, that movie is really controversial. Next up. Best motion picture drama. Can I take it, Andy? Is that okay? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Best motion picture drama went to Nomadland. We will be talking about this movie soon on the show. It is currently available on Hulu to stream if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'm a little bummed it didn't go to Mank. That was my hopeful because I'm a David Fincher diehard, uh, but that's okay. Mank is on Netflix. I'm glad it didn't go to Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix. Uh, that's kind of where I land on this. What do you think, Andy? Um, I haven't seen Nomad Land uh, either. <clears throat> I'm excited to see it. I've heard not r- really good things. Um, yeah, Trial of the Chicago Seven. Uh, it's got some problems. Mank was fine. Promising young young woman. I've had a lot of conversations about uh, this this movie. And it keeps coming in, up. Intri- yeah. <clears throat> well, it's one of these things. I, I think the movie has a lot of big issues, but it's kind of just getting a lot of. It, it's it's a little bit like the the music film uh, that we were just talking about because the subject matter it's just being kind of thrusted oh you know it's a film about sexual assault so we have to praise it and it's yes it's kind of like criticism proof at the moment and it i think it has some real real issues phenomenally well made though promising young woman is well put together but it's the writing is i don't know something about it anyway uh foreign language best motion picture yeah so uh the the winner and this is kind of an odd thing it went to uh, Minari, which is the new, it's not a foreign film. It's an American made film, but it happens yep. to be about a Korean family that moves to, uh, Alabama in the eighties, uh, to start a farm starring, uh, Stephen Yuen from, uh, the walking dead. I've seen this. Uh, it's really good. We're going to be talking about it, uh, next week. Um, but it's, it's weird because generally you, the, this is to try to encourage films that are not produced in America or other English speaking countries, but, it goes with a language thing for some reason. 
Yeah, uh, they did a very good job of not saying this is foreign film. They said foreign language. Uh, Minari is an American film by an American director with American writers filmed entirely in America with American funding from American film companies. There's nothing not American about it. It is a story about the American dream. I haven't seen it, but that's what I've heard. Andy, can you confirm? You, I mean, you've, you've seen it, right? Uh, yes. It, it, well, like I said, the, the premise is a uh, 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 family moves to a Korean family, very traditional family moves to the rural south to start a farm. Yeah, I just realized my awesome banner here has an error in it. Uh, anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm bummed by that. Also, uh, that is currently available on VOD or in theaters. And the other only one, that I, on, other one I know in here is Another Round, which is also available on VOD that I really want to see because it stars Mads Mikkelsen as, being, as a drunk teacher. Best screenplay motion picture goes to Aaron Sorkin, The Trial of the Chicago 7. I'm that's, surprised. That's a <laughs> I am and I'm not. That's a travesty. That should definitely have gone to Mank and it went to Aaron Sorkin just because he's like a name. Yes, because he's Aaron Sorkin. I know this movie juggles a lot of stars. I know it's a pretty controversial topic, I guess, but I I, I really am bummed. Yeah, I think, I think Jack Fincher wrote a script over 20 years ago and the fact that that movie came out and happened and was even here in this list is pretty tremendous. This feels like, oh, okay, well, it's Aaron Sorkin. He's a great screenwriter there. We'll give it to him. So I'm bummed. I'm, I'm, I'm bummed. It didn't go to Jack Fincher. It's okay, though. Um, lot of, Honestly, a lot of good nominees in this section. So it's okay, I guess. <laughs> right. Uh, going on to uh, Best Actor and Supporting Role, we mentioned Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, well-deserved. Yeah. Big, well-deserved. Um, the best actress... Any thoughts on the other ones? Not really. Uh, no. Best actress in a supporting role? Uh, Jodie Foster for The Mauritanian. I wish I had seen this movie. It's not... I, I went and looked it up the other day. I don't think it's available streaming anywhere yet, so we kind of just have to wait. But uh, when it comes around, I'll see if I can catch a... See if I can catch a screening of it somewhere so we can talk about it on the show. Because supposedly it's pretty good. Uh -huh. Well, see, again, that's another one that I've heard is kind of okay, but it's getting... Um, attention because of the subject matter it's mm. about Guantanamo. Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah. I haven't right. seen it e either, though. Yeah. Best actor, Andy. Uh, best actor in in a motion picture. Uh, or sorry, in a motion picture in the musical or comedy. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen for Borat. Um, that's. I mean, he had to like not be Borat. I don't think that really counts. All these people are like, no, this is a terrible category. James <laughs> Corden, the prom, Lin-Manuel Miranda for Hamilton. Obviously, Hamilton's good. That's not a movie, though. Uh, Dev Patel, the personal history of David Copperfield, which we didn't watch here, but I've heard really good things about. And Andy, Andy Samberg for Palm Strings. Yeah, Dev Patel is a good actor. And I, I didn't see that movie, but yeah, I, I've heard good things too. Maybe we'll try to go back and watch it at some point. He's going to be in The Green Knight. A24 is The Green Knight whenever that comes out. So I'm excited to see that. Oh, but otherwise, gosh, yeah. yeah, okay. I guess Borat 2 gets hit. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's a slow year at the movies, right? This is what we get when we have a pandemic, when we should have films. Uh, best motion picture animated goes to Pixar's Soul. Yes, the Disney Pixar film that came out for free on Christmas Day on Disney Plus is the winner. Uh, I'm not really surprised by the way this went. I know a lot of people had hope for Wolf Walkers. Wolf Walkers came out on Apple Plus. It was dead in the water. So that's my my <laughs> humble opinion on Wolfwalkers. Nobody can watch it. So you're never gonna beat uh, Disney or Pixar half the time. I mean, um, yeah. And there's two of them on here. Onward was the other Pixar one, but uh, Soul is very good. It is very deserving. It is also super good. Yes. Um, yeah. Best actor in a motion picture drama. Uh, really excited about this one. Best actor in a motion picture drama goes to Chadwick Boseman. From Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, his wife very tearfully accepted the award uh, via Zoom because everybody's socially distanced. Um, tough to watch. T uh, tough to watch him not be able to accept that. He is super good in that movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, and, he, yeah. And, and yeah, it's it's in a really incredible performance. And it's not just because it'd be easy to say, oh, well, he's just winning it because it's a posthumous award because he passed away this year. Um, and that's not, not true at all. If he were still alive, he would still be getting recognized for this role. It's a really yeah. incredible uh, is, performance. Yeah, he, he refuses to not step on the gas in that role. Like he leans into it 100% and he's got energy and he lights up the screen. And whenever he is on screen, you are looking at him before anybody else. I'm a little bummed Riz Ahmed didn't get it. Because, dude, Riz Ahmed needs some awards. Like, that kid's good. He's good at me. He's, he's a good actor. And Sound of Metal was good stuff. And, of course, Gary Oldman for Mank. I like Gary Oldman. I like David Fincher. I like Mank. That's just me. It's fine. Uh, moving on to Best Actress in uh, in Drama. Uh, went to 
Andre Day for the United States versus Billie Holiday, which we have not seen. I think it's just now on uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah, which, um, you know, I, 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 we probably need to watch it at some point. Uh, I'm a little surprised Viola Davis didn't get it. Cause, dude, she is li- a, a, a different person in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. She she is unrecognizable in that role. Frances McDormand in Nomadland is always a bit of, also a bit of a surprise. And frankly, Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman, she's super good in that movie. I may I may not have been super into where that where that film was pointed, but the way it was delivered was really solid, and she carries the whole thing. Um, best actress in a motion picture, musical, or comedy: Rosamund Pike for I Care a Lot. This is on Netflix right now. I think it's Netflix. Yeah, we haven't um, seen it. No, we haven't seen it. Uh, I've heard good things, and I've heard she's very good in it. I've also heard, just like Promising Young Woman, it's oddly problematic. So, I've heard that too. Also, I feel like she won because she's Rosamund Pike. I really uh, wish my girl Anya Taylor-Joy could have caught one for this, but she ended up having some success in the TV category, so good for her. I, uh, I My choice would have been Maria Bakalova from... She was the highlight of the Borat film, and and like her career is like going to really take off because of it. Right. Meanwhile, best actor in a motion picture, musical, or comedy was Sasha Baron Cohen from Borat, subsequent movie film. Why does Borat get like five Golden Globes? It's ridiculous. It wasn't even that good. Yeah, uh, Borat. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen takes it for Borat again. I, it's like you said earlier. He's kind of acting, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's it's really strange. Uh, yeah, that, I mean that that movie is. I mean, it's just, it's a, Borat is a product of its time and it just doesn't work in, in the age of internet, YouTube like content and all that. It's just, it seems really tame and lame. Yeah, it really does. Also, we've a hundred percent already covered this category. CNN printed this twice in their article. So thanks CNN. You really are fake news. Uh, best director goes to Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Uh, I, I'll be honest. I, I definitely have watched Nomadland already. It's, it's on Hulu. Um, this is a little surprising. It's very well directed and we'll talk about it more next week when we review it formally. Um, but I, I was really hoping for like Fincher, right? Um, something, something really bold. And I'm glad Regina King got a nod on here. I wasn't, I didn't think she was going to win, but I'm glad she got some recognition. Yeah. I, I, I haven't seen Nomadland either. I've seen, yeah, I've seen all, all the rest of them. Um, so we'll see when again, we're going to be talking about that next week. Yep. And uh, one more, if you don't mind me touching it. Uh, the best original score went to Soul, uh, Disney Pixar film. Obviously, very music important. What's What's interesting about this is the same composers named nailed two of these. Mank and Soul, both Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails fame. Uh, they did both of the scores, so it was cool to see them on here twice. Glad they got some recognition. Bum Tom Hanks' News of the World didn't catch one, but he's just going to have to try again next time, I guess. Uh, any thoughts on this year's Golden Globes general before we move on? Um, again, it seems to be a lot of rewarding people who are just big names, whether or not uh, they deserve it or not. Like I said, Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Borat, uh, Rosamund Pike, Aaron Sorkin, like those, uh, Charlie's Chicago seven has some good elements to it, but it's also kind of forgettable in a lot of ways. So it's just, um, yeah, I'm going to be anxious when the Oscar noms come out uh, a little bit later this month. Yeah, I, I'm i kind of in the same boat. I, I don't want to say this is like, oh, we're just picking people who are popular. But like it it feels a little disingenuous. And maybe it's just because we haven't had a good year with movies. Like there just wasn't a lot going on. So I kind of had to pick the best of the bad bunch. Borat, like uh, Borat 2 got two Golden Globes. Come on, guys. Like knew better than that i'm i'm disappointed i'm disappointed we couldn't do anything more profound and original hamilton getting multiple nods it's like guys they set up a camera and filmed a stage play i know there's a little bit more to it than that but it's not like a pure adaptation like it's literally just the filming of the tony award-winning play why does that have multiple noms like i'm a little disappointed in the golden globes this year as i'm hoping the oscars will kind of save a little face maybe take this as an example and do something different odds are they'll do the same thing we'll have to see keep it here on off script for more with that we should move on to our final film review of the episode. I'm going to be taking the summary on this, so please excuse my clumsy delivery. The movie is Earwig and the Witch. Erica, you haven't ever wished a family would adopt you, have you? Nope. 
Anybody who choose me would be pretty unusual. Irrigan the Witch is the new Studio Ghibli film. It's currently available on HBO Max, where all of the other Studio Ghibli films are available for streaming. It is their first film in four years. They've been doing some work in video games. They've been doing some work in television on Amazon Prime. But this is their first proper feature film. Irrigan the Witch is not hand animated like we typically expect Studio Ghibli films to be. This is computer animated. It's directed by Goro Miyazaki, uh, one of Hayao Miyazaki's sons. It is a CGI adaptation of the Diana Wynne Jones novel, Irrigan the Witch. It's a kid's story. And the movie is about Irwig, a young orphan who is um, unexpectedly adopted by an evil witch and her e even more evil roommate. Uh, and along <laughs> the way, uh, Earwig has to kind of cope with that, deal with that, and maybe learn a little bit of magic if she plays her cards right. Uh, it is a very short film. It is not feature length. It's like 80 minutes, and that features a beginning and end credits sequence. So even with those gone, it's like 72 minutes long. Uh, it is a fast burn, and we we like to say on this show, a good movie is never too long, and a bad movie is never too short. This movie might just break that rule. Andy, what did you <laughs> think of Earwig and the Witch? Uh, so this is a, a nice, cute little uh, kids film. It's definitely aimed at a very young audience. Uh, we, we see that reflected in, in the runtime. Um, you know... Everything's kind of simple. We we don't we don't have kind of the Studio Ghibli magic that, from a lot of their films that which are animated and aimed at younger audiences, but usually have a much a lot of depth to them. Um, you know, we'll have kind of deeper themes like things like Princess Mononoke explore like environmentalism and technology, and so we kind of don't have any of that. But it's still it, it's a nice fun film uh, for the kids. It's like I said, it's short. The animation, some of it looks really great, and then some of it looks like you're playing a bad video game sometimes it's really kind of i don't know it's weird it's hit and miss yeah um i'm i'm in the same boat this is a this is this falls on the lesser side of the studio ghibli films right there's the films that you really remember that stand out academy award-winning film spirited away princess mononoke my neighbor totoro Mostly the Hayao Miyazaki films. And then there's the ones that aren't Hayao Miyazaki that fall short, right? Things like When Marnie Was There or uh, maybe Secret World of Arietti. Movies that are good, but they're not, like, they just don't have that something. There's, like, there's this, there's this piece of something they're missing. They don't quite escalate them over to be something really tremendous. This movie falls in that category. It's not one of their better ones. I was really interested to see it because of the animation. Uh, and because it's their first theatrical in four years, um, I'm disappointed uh, by what I saw. I know it's a kid's movie, and as a kid's movie, I think it kind of works. It's definitely odd. It, I, I would lean it more towards something like a Tim Burton film than I would like a Disney movie. It's 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 offbeat, and it's a little creepy, and, and but, but it's interesting. So I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, Andy, thank you again for watching it. I know you were not typically <laughs> into this. So I appreciate you for me and, and all the other weebs on the show. Let's jump right into it. First things first, our plot. Uh, young Earwig is an orphan at a very nice kind of cathedral looking orphanage with a good friend of hers. Uh, she gets dropped off in the night as a baby by her mom with this bolt of red hair. Uh, and then later she is like, 12 years old and she's standing in line to get adopted and she's figured out this system to not get adopted. She's a very nice girl, Earwig, very nice, very helpful, but she doesn't want to get adopted because she doesn't want to have rules and standards, right? Like she, she leans away from that idea. So when a witch comes in to look at people to adopt and discovers uh, during the lineup that Earwig has mag magical powers, she immediately chooses her to be adopted, whisks her away from her home, takes her to the laboratory where they live in this magical house. And suddenly, Earwig discovers magic is not only real, but she's going to be learning it, which is exciting to her. She's into that. Like, she, she, she this, this situation that was formerly bad has now turned over and is really cool, but she's got to work for it. This witch is not nice. And her, her, her roommate, the, uh, the Mandrake, is even worse. These two do not mess around. So Earwig has to walk this clever line of being a nice person and, and doing the right thing, but also discovering more, getting out of what is essentially a prison in this house, and, uh, you know, finding a way in the world. That's the setup. Uh, unfortunately, it is it is a film that is lacking in substance. Um, I've heard it said they ran out of money when they were making this movie. And it feels like that's true. There are not many characters. There are not many settings. There's not much as far as unique animation goes. It's kind of flat. 
And I think from what I've heard, it's because Studio Ghibli doesn't have any of the elements you need to make a film like this. They're not Blue Sky Studios, the now defunct Blue Sky Studios, <laughs> rest in peace. Like they don't have rigging and they don't have like computers and servers and animation elements and all of this to put away. They had to build all that from scratch. And Gore Miyazaki, who had headed the film, was the one who kind of spearheaded that campaign to get them to kind of move into this idea of, hey, we're not doing hand animated, let's step into this. And it's a bit of a miss. It's like a technical test. I think it works, but like for a proper film, it's too short. There's not enough there. It feels like this is two thirds of a movie. Andy, am I crazy? What'd you think? No, it, it definitely feels yeah very short and uh, abrupt. It also strangely lags in the, in the middle um, because yeah. it, it kind of goes on this cycle where where she has to do all these like you know kind of gross chores around the house and gets yelled at by the uh, the person she's adopted by, and they just kind of like go in circles for like half half the movie. It it, it it's not a lot happens. Um, another thing that kind of I had an issue with is uh you know this is a Studio Ghibli film made in Japan. Uh, there were no Japanese subtitles or no Japanese uh, audio. You had to listen to the dub. Was it really instead, not? Instead of the subs, yeah. I didn't catch that. That's odd. That's really odd. So, like, I mean, I, I definitely, when, when I see see if I definitely prefer uh, to listen to the, to the Japanese and read the subtitles. So, I, I was a little, it, it keeps me more engaged. And something like this, I definitely needed it. But, yeah, there were no uh, subtitles. Yeah, to, to follow on that that line of, of adaptability um, or accessibility, I should say, the voice acting in this film is not great. Uh, the girl who plays uh, Earwig is pretty good. Otherwise, there's nobody stellar in the cast. And that might sound silly. It's a children's animated film. But like Ghibli films typically pull big names. Like they get some pretty good names to do to do work for them. Uh, their last released film was a re-release of a 1992 film uh, only yesterday. And they got Daisy Ridley to voice the main the lead and that's a 90, 1992 movie that they readapted and this was like in the height of the new star wars trilogy they got daisy ridley like that's not cheap they got they got christian bale to do Hal's moving castle in the middle of the dark knight like it, like right after he made dark knight like they they typically get good performances out of their people but this didn't have it the the voice acting's all a little subpar i think especially our witch uh bella yaga she is not awesome. And it's like, you usually need your antagonist to be pretty good, but she's lacking. Uh, and that's disappointing. The animation is stiff uh, in the film. It feels a little bit at times like a stop motion film. It reminded me of like Frankenweenie or, or even Nightmare <laughs> Before Christmas, Corpse Bride, right? Like, I think it's because of the size of these characters. Their heads are going to be big and their eyes are large, right? So you get a little bit of that like uncanny Tim Burton kind of looking art style. But everything's hand animated. I don't think there's any motion capture. So everything feels a little bit like a stop motion movie. Like a hand animator would animate a character. Like this is how these people, these animators animated these characters. And it just feels a little funny. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. It's unique, but it's not, it's not polished enough. It lacks a little something to really escalate it over and say it's tremendous. One thing I did really like in this movie though... Well, I'll talk about set dressing in a second. Andy, any thoughts on animation? Um, like I said, sometimes it, it looks fine. It looks it looks good. Um, you know, it starts off with this uh, driving sequence. Actually, that that is pretty good. But then there's parts uh, like when they're at the or orphanage, where like some of the characters' fa faces just look so flat. And there's like no texture and no yeah, like, there's kind of life to it. Yeah, yes. So it, it, it's weird. Like there were definitely parts that looked great, and then parts that looked really pretty pretty bad. Yeah, and I want to talk about, for a moment, the parts that look great. One thing this movie does really well is the Ghibli landscape. Um, Ghibli is is very good at at having landscapes on screen that are very sparse, very big fields and wide open oceans and stuff. This movie does that great. Anytime the camera would like pan up from a house at night or something and you see like kind of the cityscape behind or like these fields, it looks like it fell right out of a Ghibli movie. In fact... The art style is consistent with Ghibli's work. Like it look like if you if you pause this movie at any one point and it had Ghibli animator draw that frame verbatim just in the style of the hand drawn animation, I think it would look exactly like it would had it been done by like Miyazaki Hayao Miyazaki's team. But it's animated with computers and it's it's a little inconsistent. It's not bad. I do like the set dressing. This house they take place in has lots of textures and wallpapers on the wall, but. It just feels a little hollow. Like it's there's it's lacking something. It's missing this kind of piece of something that 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 makes their films magical, I think. 
Uh, no, you know, yeah. no I, de- I definitely agree. Like I said, it doesn't have the unique look. And some of the things, you know, when you think of, you know, scenes from Spirited Away or Ponyo, these really kind of things that wow you is just really lacking any of that. Yeah, it's it just doesn't have that. Uh, one thing I do want to talk about is while I keep talking about how it feels like they didn't have enough money to make this movie. Cause I, I mean, I, I keep saying that, but apparently like they genuinely had some trouble with funds building all of this rigging and all of this animation to make, all, make this film. Like they cost a lot. It's not cheap. Uh, this movie has like, it's gotta be the most abrupt ending in the Ghibli catalog. The ending is so abrupt. I feel comfortable talking about it on this show and you still won't see it coming. It literally feels like they, they didn't have enough money to finish the movie. It yeah, just comes like, out of it, nowhere. I was like, is there a part two? Is there a, right. like a direct sequel or something? Because where's yeah, this going? Yeah. Is there an end credit sequence? It's very odd. And, and I don't know why it's that way. I don't think the book ends there. The book this is based on. Um, I don't know. It's odd. So I, I, I find myself running out of things to say. It's not that I don't have more to it but you know if there's if there's not a lot of movie it's if it's a short film then there's not a lot to talk about so andy any other thoughts for recommendations i'm ready oh uh, one more thing while i'm thinking about it uh the music i didn't want to take a special note to talk about that you'll see on the poster if you're watching this in facebook live uh a rock band three piece uh, back there four if you count earwig singing a lot of rock music in this which was a surprise. Ghibli usually is going to be much more calm, much more like pianos or orchestral. Like this was very hard seventies rock. And I really liked it. I actually really enjoyed the music in this movie, which is a weird point to point out, but I'm just saying, if you give it a watch, I would encourage you to give it a listen as well. Anyway, Andy, ready for recommendations? I am. Andy, would you recommend Earwig and the Witch? I'm going to go with a pass on this one. Um, it, it is probably good for very young audiences. Um, like I said, it's short. It's easy to follow. It, it's fun. Like I said, it's very, you know, my, my kid's first movie kind of uh, situation. Uh, but it, it's, not, it's not very good. It's not long enough. The animation looks bad sometimes. Uh, it, it, I had a hard time kind of paying attention to it. And it's not very long. And I know, I understand I'm not the target audience, but... Uh, uh, it's just not a very good film. It's not a very good kids film either. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. Um, I would say this is probably a pass. If you are a Ghibli fan, if you have seen like seven of their movies like I have and you're into what's going on, go check it out. Um, but I, I, I think this serves better as almost like a technical demo of what they could do with animation than like a proper example of what they are doing with it. It's It's not fleshed out enough. There's not enough here. It's a really good idea, but it's not enough to make a whole movie, and that's disappointing. So it's okay. I think if, if you have little, little kids who don't really keep up with story and are just, like, looking at stuff on screen, they'll probably be really interested in it because it's a lot of, like, surreal-looking stuff happening, right? These these characters moving around and magic, but ultimately, like, I, I would encourage you to watch a handful of other, of other Ghibli films before this one. So... Kind of a pass. I'm disappointed to have to say that. But I am excited to say what we are watching next week on the show. Andy, I think we already kind of told people during the Golden Gloves. You mind filling them in? Yeah, so we're going to be watching Nomadland, uh, which is out um, already out on Hulu and Minari, which is also out on VOD. I actually... Uh, had the privilege of being able to see it in theaters uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's funny. I've seen that and you've seen known Madland, And yeah. so we, we both need to catch up on, on one other movie. And then there's also some notable releases, uh, w- which we won't be watching, but are coming out. Um, I almost said LA confidential um, <laughs> chaos walking, which is the day. Disney Ridley, Daisy Ridley, um, and Tom Holland, uh, kind of sci-fi film that, which was supposed to come out during like the star Wars time. Like this film is supposed to be, it's like years past the production. Um, uh, it's finally coming out. Uh, looks a little weird. I've heard it's not very good, but I I do actually want to cut and try and see that sometime. So that, that comes out in theaters this Friday. Uh, Disney's Raya, Raya and the last dragon, uh, comes out on Disney plus for a expensive $30 rental. Um, and that comes out March 5th, and that will be available on Disney Plus in like three months uh, without the additional fee. And then I wanted to also mention there's a film called Moxie uh, that comes out March 3rd on Netflix, which is a com- high school comedy uh, involving Amy Poehler and um, 
that's I remember we talked about that before. So those lot of lots of stuff coming out this week. Um, and our but our we're gonna be focusing on Nomadland and Minari for next week. Not to mention Amazon Prime is getting Coming to America, the Coming to America sequel uh, of Coming to America. Coming to and also America. HBO Max got uh, Tom and Jerry. Rats, we missed our opportunity to watch that. Um, no, honestly, oh no. there's there's a lot of good stuff coming out. We are kind of getting into awards season here. So it's crunch time for the show. So we're getting the goods. So we're going to be working on it uh, for our... our <laughs> I, I feel like I need to mention this because it's been a while. We had a listener recommendation. <laughs> Somebody recommended we watch LA Confidential. Uh, Jamal Park on Twitter is at Mapstone Park. Recommended we watch it. Jamal, I heard you. We're going to watch it. I promise. <laughs> It's, a, it's been on the outline for like four weeks, man. Like I, I promise we're going to get to it. I've never seen it. We will watch LA Confidential. I promise. And I'll hit you up when we do. Um, so we'll get to that. But oh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't realize you hadn't seen it. I, I've seen it, but not in a long time. I've, you know, and it's funny. I think I got another movie we should watch with it. I'll tell you about it after the show. I was, I was hearing about this other film that I think is similar in spirit that I've not seen. And I think you haven't seen either. So we'll, we'll talk about it. But if you enjoyed the show today, if you want to keep up with what we're going to be watching, if you want to know maybe if something else should have won the golden globes, or if you have some hot takes, you want to weigh in, you want to tell us what you thought about something, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. You can check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com where new episodes, live streams and interviews are going up every single week. You can follow us on Facebook where we live stream the show every single Tuesday evening at, Offscript Film Review. Follow us on Twitter, one Instagram. We're on YouTube where our live streams go up. And of course, you can find our podcasts everywhere you normally find podcasts. Weigh in in the comments. DM us, right? Hit us up. Tell us what you think. If you want to support the show, though, if there's anything you want to do for us, the biggest thing you can do is just subscribe. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can get new episodes of Offscript every single week straight to your ears from us. It would mean the world. And if you can really swing it, leave us a rating and review. It helps us a ton. You have no idea how much it helps us. It would mean a bunch, and we really appreciate it. So, with that being said, I think that covers about everything. From Offscript Film Review, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.